Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Losing the Plot. I'm Leo Robertson. I find artists of all varieties I find interesting. They're usually writers, they don't have to be. And uh, we talk about their work, we talk about life, we talk about anything and everything. We lose the plot together, hence the title of the show. As always, we start with the latest of what's going on over at Aphotic Realm. Uh, issue number seven is out now, it's gruesome. Who doesn't love over-the-top 80s horror films? A punk band fights off a horde of possessed fans at a local concert. A makeout session at the cemetery takes a turn for the worst. Slashers, critters, demons, gore, hairspray. The 80s horror B-movie aesthetic is what issue 7 gruesome is all about, so do check that out. The Realm also has its own merch store right on the Aphotic Realm site itself. Uh, you can buy t-shirts, beanies, caps and tank tops. And if you check out the new Aphotic Realm Instagram, you can see yours truly sporting an Aphotic Realm t-shirt uh, in the dark grey heather colour. I think it's great. And uh, there's loads of cool other merch. I'm sure I will get other stuff too. And uh, I hope you will as well. Please do check out the merch in the store. Finally, I hope you will consider supporting Aphotic Realm on Patreon. As a patron, you'll get early access to podcast episodes such as this one. Um, you can also uh, get digital downloads of all Aphotic books as well. So do check that out. Please consider supporting Aphotic Realm on Patreon also. I wrote this thing. I hope you like it. Let's talk about it, yeah. Let's lose track. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Talking to Leo. Our guest this episode is Richard Pastor. He's the author of the novel The Devil and the Wolf. It's a comic novel about the age old battle between good and evil. It's perfect for any fans of Terry Pratchett, Christopher Moore, Douglas Adams authors like that, anyone who likes their fiction light and satirical. I hope you enjoy the book. If you check it out, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here it is. How are you doing? Uh, actually quite good today. So, you know, any day I do not have to make my three hour round trip drive to work is heaven. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So that's why my, usually my first vacation in the summer is, you know, my first week that I take off in the summer is kind of get all these things done and get the car worked on and stuff like that. But, um, but, uh, you know, so people say, Oh, you don't have a vacation. No, I do. I don't have to drive that distance. So feels great. That's nice. I'm um, good. Thank you. I've been, uh, yeah, super busy at work. Lots of meetings, meetings all the time. So many meetings. I don't know what they're about. Uh, I have to go to them. Um, <laughs> Take my word for it. Never pay attention too deeply because you'll be wasting a lot of time. Well, it's nice because you get those moments of boredom that that spark your creativity. So I always, I'm not struggling to write at all at the moment, because um, I'm always bored enough to work out what what right. I have to do next. Yeah. Boredom. You know, it's funny you should say that because boredom has been through my life my main motivator for writing. In fact, I started when I was in high school once, and of all classes, my English lit class, uh, I was just so bored, I started writing a story in a little margin of my notepad that I had, and just kept going on and on, and that's what made me realize, you know, I enjoy writing, and so, yeah, boredom, that's, that's big. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, what I've done now as well is uh, I've blocked, like, Facebook, Twitter, even email and stuff, so I can't see it at home because you, you, I always get these little impulses like, oh, I'm a little bored. Why don't I see Twitter? Oh, I can't see Twitter. Oh, why don't I see Facebook? Oh, I can't see Facebook. Oh, I guess I'll write then. And it like, oh, that, hmm. Yeah, that's clever. I like that. <laughs> yeah, so that's really worked. But you've, so you've been writing for a really long time then. Yes, but not, you know, it, this is the thing. I, I, um, like I said, I started writing in high school. Um, mm -hmm. like I, no, I was 16 at the time. So I started writing. And, uh, you know, and the first thing I wrote was pretty funny. And I remember showing it to a friend. And so on and off throughout my life, I would just get the urge to write. And I would. It was just generally little essays I'd write, little short stories, things like that, and, and hand off to friends and uh, or relatives or whatever, and just get a kick out of doing it. It wasn't, you know, 
had so much going on in my life all the time. It was my little hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, not, my gosh, not to denigrate the art of writing, but me personally, it was like a hobby, a side thing. And that's the thing. I have a lot of hobbies. I love doing cooking. Uh, I love growing vegetables. But I could never do any of those things as a job because I'm you know, always afraid it would take away my love for it, you know, just having to do it. But but anyway, so I had done this on the side. And uh, as I started to get older, I, I just started to really look into it as a craft. I mean, I actually look into, you know, writing. I, I took some extra courses. I took one course, evening course at NYU with an editor, and I believe I don't remember her name because it's like 25 years ago, but it was an editor from the New York Times. Hmm. And she actually liked what I was writing, and that really gave me more push, you know, but still never enough where I could say, I think I'd like to try to do this more than just as a small personal thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so one day, about four years ago or so, I was sitting down, uh, taking a break. I was painting my chair downstairs and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I had this conversation with myself over and over over the years. I never finish anything. I've actually tried to write a book a number of times. You know, I try, I, I get these great ideas. It's, you know, it, I get these really great ideas, creative spurts, and I start doing them. And usually when I reach the point that I feel satiated by what I was trying to accomplish, I haven't completed it. And I do love the feeling you get when you complete something. Don't get me wrong, but my desire seems to to just fade and, and I don't finish the projects and, and they just, you know, lie up there. So I was painting the downstairs room and I realized, you know, I was kind of putting everything away. I said, well, I only have the door to the garage left to paint. It's different. It's going to be, you know, it's white. So I mm-hmm. was going to have to get that paint down. And I said, you know, I said, but will you finish it? Will you finish it? You never finish anything. You never finish this. You never, never finish the book you wanted to write. And I thought, you know what? I have the time. This was one of my vacation weeks. I said, I am going to start, really start writing a book, and for once in my life, finish something. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the book, and the doorway to the garage is still unpainted. <laughs> <laughs> so you just, you changed what you left unfinished. Yeah, it wasn't the book this time. There's, there's plenty more lying around here, but the, the, the writing, it did something. Once I, I wrote that book, I finished it, and again, I wasn't even expecting anyone except a couple of friends to read it. But when I finished that, I said, you know what? I, I think I should go a little further mm-hmm. and look into self-publishing. And then I found out how easy self-publishing has become. Because I looked into it before. I even have a couple of books I bought years ago on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just even self-publishing was such a difficult uh, ordeal to go through. And you had to have a lot of money to back up you know, X number of copies printed. And again, if it's not my career, it, it wasn't like something I wanted to uh, to go that deeply into. But then when I saw it, my gosh, it's it's a point and click. Um, why not? Mm. That's that's how it got started. Yeah, so. that's great. Is, is it? Um, is this something you would do as a career if you could? Now, yes, I've often thought about it. I thought, you know, if um, I mean, I'm. I'm Getting up there now, and, and in fact, the other day at work, I was talking about something with retirement. Usually, I would talk about retirement. It's in my mind, like, whatever number of years, but we're into single digits now. Mm. Uh, it's scary. Um, but I started thinking a couple of years back, two years back, that, you know what, if I had, I think, enough financial security, and I don't mean like, oh, I can, you know, have a boat and everything like that. I just mean, um, you know, pay the bills, et cetera. I have a mortgage, big mortgage. If I had that, I think I would like to invest more time and to really try to pursue this as a, an actual secondary career and, 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 and transition over to that, you know, to making writing my, my possibly last career. Because that changed over time, what, what I've done. Um, usually just went with the flow of what life threw at me, and I'm looking at this the same way. So, um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, it, it, it it would be at this point with again closing in on the point where you know you need to retire and stop living off of whatever social security and whatever meager savings you have. Um, it's it's be tough. It'll be just as tough as someone first getting out of college financially, but then they have their whole lives ahead of them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I I would do it definitely in a heartbeat if um, I could settle most of my major debts and uh, and you know. 
to start looking to write more professionally. Mm-hmm. So. so tell me about the tell me about the Devil and the Wolf. Uh, what was uh, your uh, how, how did you start writing this? Because it's really intricately structured. Did you do a lot of plotting first? Oh, thank you. Um, thank you for saying that. Uh, no, actually, the plot was one of the last things to occur to me. And this is actually hmm. very interesting well, for me. It's an interesting story. I've, I, I told it a couple of times, and uh, it, it was a very organic thing. When I made that decision that day to, to write a book, uh, I started thinking about, well, you know, where do I want to start? And it's always comedy with me. You know, I, I, I'm much more relaxed, and I really have even done research at points in my life on comedy. It's the way I brought it up. So I knew it was going to be a comic thing. And immediately my mind went to these characters that I created uh, with friends. I, I do some online gaming. I've been doing it like for since 2000. And again, just a, the past time, I've made a number of friends uh, across the country, around the world, here and there. And uh, as I were, was in these games, I just create my little avatars, you know, what, you know, I guess way back when we were kids, you called dolls or action figures, depending on whether you're, you're back then a boy or a girl. Um, and so I create these little avatars and, uh, and I, you know, just my natural thing, I imbue personalities in them. And so the people I met, one of the funny things was I had two characters. I had a bunch of them, but two characters were in one particular game was an old, old game called the Sims online. And I had one in one place and one in another. I had two accounts going and a weird thing was whenever I brought them together with people that knew them, the people that knew one character did not like the other, thought that was a weird person and vice versa. So I thought this is really psychologically fascinating. But anyway, so I created these characters. And then as I made friends, I brought some of them over from game to game because they were like, you know, a little bit more like real characters. I started putting them in stories, et cetera. So when I got to that point uh, where I thought, okay, I want to do this book. I nearly went to those characters. That was Mephistopheles and and Jr. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I knew how they would play off each other. I knew how they would interact. I had done different stories with them, sure, but they were how could I put this in different universes, as it were. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't give a backdrop. I didn't give anything. I just created these little scenarios, and they were pretty. They were pretty funny. So I said, "All right, I'm starting with characters first. That was the thing. I knew the two, but I said, "You know what?" All right, so if I'm going to make this story, I'll, I will definitely need a plot, uh, but I need more of a backdrop. Any fantasy story you create, you know, you have to do some amount of world building. Thank heavens I haven't tried to attempt a full well, fantasy, uh, The Lord of the Rings or, or uh, Game of Thrones, because you you really do truly build your world and universe. And I don't have to worry about that. It's a comedy. You know? mm-hmm. As long as I'm making people laugh, it doesn't have to be accurate. But I, I decided to think about that. I had read a book uh, from Stephen Brust many years ago calling to reign in hell. Um, and um, it was an eye opener for me. And I just loved it. I love the way he created the angels and the devils. That, you know, they were all angels at one time. How his, his whole point about chaos and from chaos comes this one being, etc. It was it was really great. And I said, you know what? I like that style i like that um that structure so i kind of vaguely went with that and then actually as i developed the story that was going on i i actually changed some of my characters i actually wrote him a note about this uh on a close to new year's eve um i i wrote an email to him saying look you know this is an homage because i love that book i actually changed some of my character relations i put lily together with lucifer from an original plan i had just because i felt like i owed him that he, he gave me the spark of of creating this world. So once I had the world structure, I think that led me to create the plot. I thought, all right, so you have Mephistopheles, you have him as, um, uh, well, as a trickster element. I, I love trickster elements. We could talk about that in a little bit while, cause I go on forever about that, but mm-hmm. you have him as a trickster. He exists between two worlds. And that again is the way Marlowe had described him as, you know, just someone who is neither in heaven nor hell, um, walking on earth. And so I said, okay, it exists between two worlds. And of course, when you have a trickster element, it's going to cause change in those worlds. And so I started thinking about it on again and all, but so everything started to come to place. Uh, but the characters were first and that was, that's what drove the book. 
cool. And the book, for those who don't know, is about... Uh, or, well, you can explain if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Because, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> I love that. Whenever people are asking, they're like, what's it about? Like, oh. And, you know, it's one of the toughest questions sometimes for an author. It's the oddest thing. But it is about uh, uh, this, these two main characters, is Mephistopheles and his assistant, put that in quotes, J.R. Wolf. Um, and uh, the general idea is that Mephistopheles has been doing what literature has, has created him doing, which is, you know, supposedly selling souls to see if people are basically uh, selling, buying souls to see if people are basically good or ill. I mean, that's what they did in literature. I, I did a little bit more spin on that. And so I said, it's really heaven and hell have argued about humanity for eons, whether they're basically good or evil. And so they enlist Mephistopheles to get people, candidates like Faust, you know, for instance, and give them whatever they want so that if they have whatever they want, you could see their true nature. And it never works out. And this is not what Mephistopheles ever wanted to do, and he just wants out. So he uh, gets an assistant, JR, and he forms a plan, a long-term manipulative plan, to put heaven and hell in a position where this whole process of trying to decide, because they never come to an agreement, just stalemates and they're stuck and then he's free of it. And um, not to say that that's a reflection of how I felt about my job when I was working, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but yes, he, he, uh, so that is it. And it is, as I said, it's a comedy. It's, um, you know, I'm not, I, I really, intentionally lightly touch on a a lot of big topics but i don't go deeply like what is good what is evil what is it to be the hero or the villain uh there's there's a lot of little things i touch on but i wanted to keep it light but by all means you know i thought it could generate discussion so um Hmm. is that okay is that (laughs) (laughs) no it's it's great it's actually I don't want to give anything away. That's why I'm trying to be careful bantering on some things. Uh, okay, okay. Well, then I, I, I'll, I'll. But I, I can't. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind. Like, for instance, let me t- let me say this up front. Um, the, the, the book has very little surprises in it because uh, I intentionally worked. At one point, I did have. I had a plot that ended up with uh, the ending. The ending was this big sort of cliffhanger ending where. Uh, you know, heaven and hell are, have come down to earth, et cetera. And, and it's the big final moment and something goes wrong with Mephistopheles plan. And the last words is something stupidly benign. And I didn't have a plot element written for this. Like I said, it, it came out of more character and dialogue is, is Mephistopheles saying something to JR like, uh, you did empty the dishwasher, right? And JR just goes, uh Oh, and then, Boom, you know, something stupid. <laughs> and then you left and I said, you know what? I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do a cliffhanger ending. I don't want to do this this big thing. And I and that's why I actually said, you know what, this is a book about character. And I said, I'm gonna make the twist. That's why I'm not gonna give this away. I'm gonna make the twist about motivation and character. I'm gonna make it so that you get to the end of the story and then there's a little follow-up that makes you re-question everything about the character one of the characters from the whole story at least if you think about it if you stop to think it over Hmm. you go what was what was his real motivation you know so Hmm. i decided that um well one one of the things i really liked about it and it's the type of story that i'm drawn to is one where you get to re-experience kind of typical human experiences from the perspective of somebody who's having them for the first time Yes, that was actually difficult to write because it's been done many times and, you know, I didn't want to just redo, but I also didn't want to break ground because when it has been done, it's usually done well. Uh, so I I could, in fact, oh gosh, you know, you're making me remember so many tough decisions I made. I could have made mm-hmm. a larger chunk of the book about about someone who is now human and, you know, new to the world, stranger in a strange world, mm-hmm. right? and their experiences. I could have done that, but I decided, again, because there was a lot to squeeze in this one book, and I wanted to finish it. Um, and I, I, I decided to just do this like there's a brain dump of information. So it isn't constant discovery. It's more or less becomes recognition 
oh, now I see what that is. And oh, yes, I, I have a feel for what this is. But again, again, because it's to me, it's all about character. You take this, this, this creature and you say, well, what were they like before then? And, and now in this environment, what maintains and you know if and of course we're talking about the wolf in this case and if you know anything about canines and wolves and stuff they are very gregarious and all that but they're so destructive (laughs) they can be so destructive so um i thought uh and again secondary trickster character uh i thought that's what i would do have this this you're right this point of view like i'm discovering the world but also it's not along the lines of um, I'm lost in it. It becomes very quickly accustomed to it. Hmm. So, well, so, at least that's you know the way I wrote it. You tell me. <laughs> you can tell me about your impression. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, no, I mean, it, it, what I'd written down was uh, that it reminded me of Terry Pratchett and Christopher Moore. Um, yes, and then I saw at the end that they were favorites of yours. So they, I mean, I I have enjoyed those types of books before, and I thought you'd done a great job of, uh, you know, doing that light comedy style. Thank um, you. I I appreciate it because I revered those people, um, those authors, and that's why they were at the end. I honestly, I mean, many authors I'm influenced by, but those particular ones, especially Christopher Moore. Oh my gosh. Um, and just when I've gotten reviews and people bring up those names, I, I don't want to do the, I'm not worthy, but I really am not. Um, I, I, and I also worry that I was maybe too influenced. You know, I, um, it, 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 uh, it was, you know, very, it's in fact, let's just leave it at that. It says, thank you. Thank you for your. <laughs> okay. But, but that is, again, that is the tone I liked. I, I enjoyed reading. So it's the one I wanted to strike, uh, this sort of light tone. Mm. Uh, but underneath it all, you know. Yeah, because this is about people. Yeah. It is quite a difficult central question that you've put at the heart of this novel. It's perhaps the question. And I wonder if it's this idea of the humanity test. Is it something that you yourself waver on? Oh, yes. Um, I was... I attempted to put this in the in the notes at the end, but I, I decided not to. I was so uh, affected by nine eleven to a degree. I mean, yes, I had a friend who worked in that building, unfortunately, you know, and whether the second plane hit exactly where the second plane hit, and uh, fortunately was late to work. That they had two cousins that worked there were also late to work. I mean, it was all the personal thing. I was supposed to go in and, and teach web design uh, in New York that day too. So there's all these personal things. But once that had passed, I was just left with these big open questions. And the one that affected me the most and to this day, like shakes me to the core is, you know, we were very quick and we are very quick um, to, and then, you know, my personal viewpoint rightly, but to label these as villains, these people who took these planes and, and killed so many innocent people, they're villains. But the, the disjoint to me was that these people, thought they were going straight to heaven. Hmm. I mean, how do you come to terms with the disparity of, of human concept of good and evil when every day we sit there thinking, well, look, we know everyone has different views in it. You know, you could see the the schisms in this country right now, et cetera. And they seem to be polarized, but at the bottom of it, we do have this shared concept of doing good to each other and helping each other. I don't know. I mean, when that happened, I was like, obviously not, you know, and to, to not just think like, well, I'm doing a wrong for a better good. People do that sometimes. They know they're doing something wrong, but it's for the end result of good. The ends will justify it to me. But that wasn't it. That mm-hmm. wasn't it. This was, I am going straight to heaven after this. No questions asked. I'm going to spend eternity. I just, I can't. I still, to this day, I cannot get past that. So in this book, in this book, I, I again, lightly, I could have written chapters on it, but I didn't. I just wanted to say over and over, is this really what you think is good? Is this what you think is evil? Are you rooting for the good guys or the bad guys? And it's because it's, it's light and it's funny, so you don't have to worry about big issues there. But 
you know, I, I still, I have a lot of time coming, a, a lot of trouble coming to grips with the concept of good and evil. Now I, I still will maintain what I believe is good and lead my life like that. Um, and, you know, always try to help people and, and make people laugh, et cetera. But, but I am aware that that's a, the most malleable concept we have, you know, and it made me really think it was that, that extreme, but it is. Hmm. No, well, that's, it's interesting to have framed a question like that in a comic novel. Um, and I think that's what makes it so compelling. Um, I think that, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure most people are basically decent. And I think that there are some very strange minor ideologies out there that I, I think especially because of, um, I mean, it's such a cliche to talk about, but the social media idea that you find the most outrageous view and then you go, whoa, look at what this wacky guy thinks. Let's all talk about that for ages. And then <laughs> yes. you make it feel like loads of people think that way, but it's just not true. You're like, whoa, some people think the earth is flat. Let's let's right. make some documentaries about that. And it's like, well, I think that any any kind of viewpoint that can be formulated, no matter how valid it is, will be held by someone. I think we know that now. Um, right. That's, that's the point. Exactly. You, yeah. you, you hit it right on the head there. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's yeah. a, fen- it's a phenomenon. Um, it but, is, but it's a disturbing one, you know, because mm-hmm. you would like to believe in a common goal for humanity. Hmm. And it is, I mean, they, uh, as you put it, the vast majority, but the fact that, you know, small pockets of that have a completely flipped view Mm-hmm. And I don't, in fact, to the point where I don't want to stigmatize or, or say anything negative about them, because, you know, I'm not going to say, well, is that the valid way to go? No, I'm just saying, though, that from their point of view, how they were brought up in their culture and everything, this is so right. And uh, we have to be aware of that always. I think we always have to be aware that we are not all in lockstep as to, you know, where humanity as a whole should go. I mean, most of us are, and that's good and that's comforting. But um, but we always have to be aware that there's just a different way of looking at everything. So well, uh, how about you? Are you going to heaven? Oh, you know, <laughs> thank you for that because it's a good one. Because it depends on what moment you talk to me. It depends on what I believe. What I believe the universe is because there, you know, I'm very much grounded in science, and so very often my let's just say I grew up brought up Catholic, etc. Uh, that's why, you know, the, the concepts in the books were easily familiar to me. But I, um, I, I often will start off by saying there is nothing outside of when we are alive. Because that's how I reconcile the two things. I brought up saying, well, there's a God, there's heaven, there's hell. Um, am I going to heaven or hell? I don't know. You know, I like to believe I do. Everyone thinks they do. No one and that's again in the book. No one sees them. I think that's the exact line I use. No one sees themselves as a villain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, you know, but um, unless there's something wrong with them. So, so you know, am I? But what I I really believe is that I started to think about. It, so, well, you know, it's a good possibility there is absolutely nothing but our existence. You know, nothing before, nothing after. I don't want to bring people down about that because <laughs> it means, like everything is just there's no hope for you or anything. There's just and you know it, you you exist and you're gone. But what I decide to do to reconcile those two parts of my mind is to say, you know what, I can still on some level believe there is an afterlife, there is something, there is, there will be, I, I, I don't believe in hell, I'll come back to that in a moment, but there will be, you know, some something after this and there could be a God and everything, but I'm not going to live my life as if there is. I'm not going to do the right thing because I'm afraid of going to hell. Mm. Or I want to get into heaven. I'm going to do the right thing because I believe it's the right thing. Uh, making people's lives better is the right thing. I'm, and so I don't need a God. I don't need a religion. I don't, I don't actually don't like religion. Mm-hmm. That's my problem. But I don't need a God. I don't need heaven. I don't need angels and saints. They may all be there. And, you know, there are many times, many many instances in my life where I really do believe, you know, something that I could not explain had happened. But I don't need that to live my life. I'm going to live my life as a good person regardless, or at least I hope I do. You know, I'm sure there are 
remember people who I've met in my life who may think of me more as the devil than as an angel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that true of everybody though? But anyway, of course. But it, I, uh, yeah, I, yeah. So I, I. That's why it's tough for me to answer. Am I going there? Well, first, let me decide if there is a there, <laughs> <laughs> and then okay. if there is. You know, I would love to believe that I am going there. I'm flawed. I've made terrible mistakes, but try to correct them when I could. So I hope I am, but I, I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge. I will go there if there is a there. And um, and if there is a there, it's obviously structured in a way to decide what happens to you next. You know, I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Defending Your Life. No, I don't uh, know it. Okay. It's a funny movie, Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks. And- Ooh. It's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's again, it's light, lighthearted, but it's his concept of where the, oh, I can't find out who the author of this was. It might've been Albert Brooks actually. In fact, it probably was, but his concept of the afterlife, as funny as it was, was really though a way station to going further and further. And you were judged, but you weren't judged like to go to hell. You would, you're, if you weren't good enough to go forward, you were just sent back to earth, you know? Uh, so, you know, that's how, and, and I like to think of it like that too. If there is an afterlife, if there is a God, if, and again, big part of me believes there is, but if there is, I'd like to believe that the process just keeps going on. We become better and the universe becomes more intricate and, you know, even though it's pretty intricate now, but it just, you know, that I'd like to believe that, that we learn here the skills we need to go next. And if we don't, we take another stab at it. Hmm. So, interesting, interesting idea. I am. I, um, I, th- I think that you. I'm really at a loss as to why uh, an afterlife would would dictate your behavior one way or another. I think that um, even some people, I think it helps them be less impulsive. But I, I think that sometimes I see the impulsive option uh, in a situation, and I just you can just tell how unhelpful it is in the long run. That it just right. you don't need, uh, you don't need the threat of heaven or hell to make you avoid like momentary temptations. Because I think when you're old enough and you've you've given into them enough times, you just see how pointless it is. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the the greater good is really your personal good as well. It's it's just it's whatever's the most mutually beneficial thing is generally what to do. So, um, you know. That's that's exactly that's a good point. It's as you as you mature, you learn that you know it, the, the closer you align your positive goals to the social positive goals, the better both end up being. You know, it's it's not just a summative thing; it's multiplicative. You know, it, 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 there's more good grows out of it when you do that. Yeah, I, you, I mean, I think like anyone selfishly thinking uh, would come to the same conclusion anyway. <laughs> like if they were really thinking about it. Yeah, if you want to maximize the size of the, the, the people who adore you and the stuff that you have, just do work hard and do like it's 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 no matter what your motivation would be, you would probably I don't know. I mean yeah, who knows? I'm not or I'm not gonna answer it now. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, those are the unanswerables of life, you know. Yeah. Just make your decision on them and then proceed forward and know some trauma happens to make you rethink everything yeah well one thing happened recently was i was i'm almost never late to a flight and i think this was the latest i was about to get in to flight and i wasn't paying attention at all and i was running through security and this woman uh, stopped me and was like uh mate like you're trying to skip the queue there's a huge queue and i hadn't even seen it because i was so stressed and then to her i was just some like horrible idiot trying to cut ahead of a queue which afterwards i was like i'm not going to take her aside and explain that's not me so like forever after i'll just be that idiot who interrupted her but so like or or, or tried to skip the cues like in different contexts and to different people definitely um depending on what was like your defining mistake in their company is how they think of you but um i don't know i mean you can't good like no matter what good or bad happened in the past you just have to kind of move on and <laughs> do right. better next time right. yeah i mean you can feel mortified about it but there's nothing you do to go back and change her view that when she got home that day off oh, this jerk today you know yeah that was me i was a complete jerk yeah. like 
Because you didn't. Oh, believe yeah. me, I I'm sure I have been that to many people over time. I you know. Yeah, it's it's unavoidable. <laughs> I think like. What I was proudest of is I just re- emotionally recovered faster from it than before. <laughs> I think after two days, I was like, all right, I'm going to move on from this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I know, I probably would have dwelled on it for quite some time. That is the problem being brought up, you know, in this Catholic Italian environment. Well, actually, it was a half Jewish neighborhood, so really guilt was was a door-to-door uh. prospect. But uh, but you really do feel bad about him for a while. These little things. So you so you, go, yeah. you grew up religious. Uh yes. I would say the younger I was, the more religious I was. My problem was at, at and I, this actually happened at a relatively early age. I must have been like ten, nine or ten. I started to see that you know you know I would read read the Bible, especially you know the what we call the red text, the words of Jesus in in the New Testament, and. I would read that, and then I look around me at the way the nuns, the priests, and everything, and the whole the whole church was in it, and it didn't line up, you know. And then even you know our, the country, I mean, they're saying, well, you know, we're God fearing this and that, but then when you look at what we do, it just doesn't match. So I started to think that you know what the Bible, um, uh, you know, especially say the things that Jesus had said, or you can go out and say the things that Buddha, you know, whatever, doesn't matter. But the positive aspects are really good. But then, you know, and, and you get like, you get Jesus coming down and saying, um, love thy neighbor, you know, it's, et cetera. And then the first thing people do is they start sitting and go, but that's not enough. We need more rules. We need more things, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the old Testament, there are 10 commandments. They're pretty simple. They're not really that exclusive. They don't even have punishments with them. It's just, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Do this, do this, do this. 10 of them, right? Don't kill. Don't, uh, you know, whatever. So, uh, so they're there and they're not that bad. You know, they're actually a good enough code to live by. But then, you, like I said, you get like Leviticus numbers, et cetera. You get all these, these, they have to, I have to create more rules. And that's humanity. It's humanity making hell on earth, basically, if you want to say that. But it, and I realized that when I was very young, that it's the institutions that people create afterwards. If, you know, at least at that point, that's how I looked at it. Um, is they're they're terrible <laughs> they're flawed and forever we want more rules and more you know restraints and constraints and then of course you know it, i don't know you, you just see how how that can be taken to you, you look at history you know you can see what what the church became of the church during the period of the inquisition etc i mean you couldn't get more further away but that's what happens that's the the flaws of mankind you know mm-hmm. humanity i should say um is that they'll create something. There's something good. The, the first thing they got to do is someone who comes down and preaches peace, kill him. Right? <laughs> so that's the first thing you do. And then after that, you start to build all the rules that completely change everything that person said to almost the opposite. And then you go, huh. okay, we're back where we started. We're comfortable now. Let's just go on with killing each other. <laughs> so that's how I started. The first thing I alienated from was religion and by institutionalized religion, if you want to call that. So, and nothing against the church itself. I'll go against any institutionalized religion, you know? Mm. So, uh, uh, but that was the first thing that hit me. And by the time I got to high school, yeah, it was full blown. Even though I was in a Catholic high school, you know, and I'm very comfortable around Catholicism and Catholics. It's, you know, how I grew up. But, uh, in fact, it was a good thing. Uh, and then in, in college, I did the same thing. I went to a Catholic college for them. But in those two instances, like the, the college, it was Jesuits. And one thing that's nice about Jesuits is they're not afraid to question everything. So, uh, so, you know, I realized as I was going through this process, yeah, you can question and you're allowed to. And I did. Uh, and the answers I came up with pushed me away from uh, that organized religion sense. So... Hmm. Yeah. Um, I kind of think that one of the things, I mean, I never, I, I don't, I don't even remember. I don't think religion was a big thing. I, I think my, uh, my dad was Protestant. My mom was Catholic growing up, but they never really made me religious. Yeah. That's the thing. I, I think that if you're not religious, you, uh, you miss out in the sense of community, just the, the excuse to meet up with a bunch of people around you. And like, right. you know, 
have a reason to make friends with them and just check how they've been and have like the notion that you're doing good and that's that's lovely you know like some sort of secular version of that would be nice Right, there, that's exactly, well, yeah, not quite not quite like playing Pokemon, right? You, know, you can meet a lot of people that way. Oh, that's but true, yeah. You want something right. You want to get, that's why, you know, it's good to get involved in community activities, et cetera. I mean, it, I really, the how can I put this, the elements of, of the religion, the initial elements of most religions are really positive, really positive, really can make us better people. Mm-hmm. Again, that's what we do to it afterwards. So, uh, and then by the way, also I did grow up in a, in a very, uh, I mean, I grew up in a, the neighborhood and my friends, et cetera, but my family, my family, my father wasn't really much of a churchgoer. My grandmother was Lutheran. My, my, one of my aunts was, uh, became a seventh day Adventist. Uh, one, you know, was an atheist. One was, you know, I mean, I, I, I oh, uh, uh yeah, the, the, almost any religion was in my extended family. So, um, I had a broader view. My friends didn't, they were all from Catholic families and Catholic cetera. But, um, but I had a, a broader extended view. I think that helps. I think, you know, it gives you some perspective that you can look outside. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah. So it, it sounds like, um, from from these video games that you're playing and that I see you interacting with other writers and social media and everything, that community is a really important thing to you still. Yes, I I am. I you know that those that uh, oh, Migs Briar test. Uh, Bri- yeah, Briggs Meyer. Gosh, you know there was a spoonerism. Briggs Briggs Meyer test. I score always dead center between ENTP and INTP. And other I actually was in psychology, so. That's why screwing up the name was a little embarrassing there. But um, uh, and I I took tests for a practice from other students, et cetera, that you know uh, in graduate school, et cetera. And that always happened. I am both introvert and extrovert, hmm. and uh, and I love being alone. I love my own time, but I need to socialize. And I think it's important that you know I know people who are very shy, and I so I know how that feels because it takes a lot of energy to go to functions and do, but you really need to, because, because that sense of community, you know, that, that sense of interaction, um, it, it's, it can't be replaced with something else. Likewise, the ability to get away from all that, to be with yourself, to be just one person makes you face yourself. You know, it's good for you to, I think it's healthy. You know, there are people who are too dependent on what, how others see them and et cetera. And wondering how am I coming across here, but to just be by yourself and with yourself. So I there's good parts of each, but I think, I think the benefits of, of getting into groups, socializing, whether it's physically, whether it's online, uh, it, it just is going to keep your mind open it's going to teach you. It's going to be make you a, I think, a better, full-rounded person. So it's worth the effort. That's all I can tell people. <laughs> it's a lot of effort. And uh, what 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 do you hope that your fiction does? Uh, honestly, I think I put. I really do. Uh, hope to make people laugh. Uh, I, I mean, just you know what. And this is what I told people when I wrote the first book, and I'm writing a, a second. I, I, and I lost my third and fourth, but I'm going to recover them. But anyway, uh, I said to someone, and I mean this so sincerely, if you have my book and you're somewhere, maybe you're on the beach, maybe you're on a plane, maybe you're in the train station waiting for a train and you're killing some time and you open the book and you read and you hit a point that just makes you go <laughs> – you know, that little noise, just like it escapes your lips, a little chuckle, a little something. My work on this planet is done. <laughs> I mean, really, I feel like that I – that is – because that's what I love. You know, when – I mean, I've read – believe me, I read all sorts of books. But when I've read anything comedy, you know, comedy-related or humorous in any sense, that uh, that moment something burbles up and I make a noise, you know, I, I think – I really think that's a great that's a great feeling. It's a wonderful feeling because you really didn't want to say something do something out loud, you're on a train or whatever, but mm-hmm. it escapes you and, and you know, you realize, okay, I really did think that was funny. So if I can do that with my writing, honestly, I'm I'm not out to change the world or write the great American novel as the old expression used to be called. Um, I guess we should say the great universal novel now. But uh I'm not out to do any of that. I really honestly just want people to have a, a place to run away to 
get a few good laughs, and then they can go back to dealing with everyday things. So nice. I think that's, that's a, a lovely goal. Um, yeah. Do you know what really? I, I think that I don't know. Fiction and like this podcast are the main ways that I remind myself that humanity is like good and interesting and clever. Because if you've got a big stack of books around you and you've ever tried to write one, you're like, how did all of these people crack it? Like, how, mm. how is that possible? With the podcast as well. I mean, I was talking to my brother. He lives in Japan. Um, I Skyped with him yesterday and I said, look, if you can find interesting, like-minded people over there that are your friends and I can do the same here in Norway, I'm going to guess that the world overall is, you know, there are interesting, nice people everywhere. And... Uh, and a stack of books and an interesting chat with someone like yourself reminds me that, oh my God, there's interesting, clever people everywhere. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and there are, <laughs> there are, I've stolen enough jokes from them to know. <laughs> <laughs> I do that to my friends, my online friends. Uh, you know, they may say some friends, I'm going to use that. <laughs> uh, but there are, I, I found that too. I think that's the, the, the probably the biggest benefit for the internet. Um, you kind of remember my age. I, I, I grew up way before that, before he was as conceptually possible. Um, but it's wonderful to be able to meet people and realize, my gosh, this is someone, I don't want to use that word literally, but almost exactly halfway around the world for me. And they're clever and they're funny. And, and it's as if I've known them for a while. And gosh, it's a shame they're just not down the block right now because, you know, I would get some people together and, you know, watch movies, something, but it, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see that there are, you're right. There are people everywhere that are clever and funny and intelligent. And, you know, like I said, I, I started listening to your podcast, you know, I've, I wrote you this. It's, I love your podcast. It's mm-hmm. one of the things, you know, I, and I'm, I don't listen to that many cause I just don't have that much time, but mm-hmm. the people you have on, I connect with every single one of them on some level. I mean, some of them, they have these deep, you know, very, very sad stories that really hit me right to heart, but I can connect. Mm. I've been through things too. And others are talking about the writing process. I'm like, yes, yes. So it's a wonderful feeling to know that, to know there are so many people out there, you know. Oh no. I mean, I I knew, I knew that's why we would have an interesting chat is because my favorite guests are fans of the show and know the kind of thing that I like to talk about. And, and are open to it um it's kind of uh i don't notice that i'm doing it it's just kind of intuitive the way i, I follow conversation um but it seems kind of <laughs> i don't know i think it seems rare to other people uh well not to engage in law growing but you do an excellent job of it there is another person i do occasionally listen to who also seems to have an intuitive knack of when to talk about what, you know, like, like, yeah, yeah, they had to talk about the, a book or a set of books or a writing process, whatever it is, but knowing when to go a little bit more in one direction or another, or as you say, just, you know, it's just, you know, lose the thread, et cetera. Um, just, it's, it's a talent. It's a skill and a talent. And that's what I, you know, that's, that's what I love to listen to. So, um, so yeah, I'll give you some praise back there. Oh, well, no, I, I really, I do appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I mean, I don't. Um, and, and writers as well. I mean, the, what was it? I was telling. Yeah, I was talking to my brother yesterday and he was saying that he has a bunch of favorite writers that maybe he would never want to meet. And then I had uh, <laughs> I'd read uh, an interview with Zadie Smith when she said that people were very much like their books and that she um, she uh, was really disappointed by meeting them. Um, do you wow. think? Do you think that's the case? Who would you meet if you could? Uh, well, I would. I would love to meet some of the people I mentioned there in the in the back. Uh, but you know, Christopher Moore definitely. And I have actually gone to a book signing of his. Uh, Kevin Hearn. Oh my gosh, what a nice guy! If you haven't, I didn't mention him in my book, but I've read his books. Kevin Hearn. Uh, he was doing a book signing, and uh, it was in Philadelphia. And again, when I, you know, I, I, I grew up in the, in the New York City, and I would run into, I physically ran into Matthew Broderick once. I was trying to mm-hmm. dart out of the rain just as he was when we bumped into each other. And it, celebrity doesn't do anything, but when I meet writers, I, I start 
gibbering and acting like an idiot. Um, I even I even gave Kevin Hearn my buck, which was really kind of I said, why did you do that? <laughs> but uh, but he is such a nice guy. I mean, I, I, the, so uh, I wouldn't mind meeting him again, but in a more social sense, you know, maybe. Maybe someday my book will actually hit something and then um, there will be an opportunity. I don't know. But uh, there are a couple like that. But I do know what you mean because, uh, again, I've met – I've been at functions and there were celebrities there and they're nothing like you would think they are. And sometimes good and sometimes bad. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's disturbing. I, I really am um, uh, not crazy about when that does happen. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I've left this. Well, okay. First, um, are you working on anything at the moment? I should probably yes. ask that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, let me just say, I, I mentioned, I was working on two other books and, uh, you know, uh, hold on a second. Okay. I was working on two other books and uh, I had them backed up on a drive and we had this hellacious storm here, which completely fried my hard drive and fried up the backup drive, <laughs> but I'm trying to recover them. But either way, I'm, so I, I do have those two. They were they were well along, but I decided not to cry over that electrocuted milk, and <laughs> I started another one. And it's been a, a gosh, it's a perfect second child because it's been joy and sorrow. I I both hate and love working on it. I'll tell you, well, I can tell you enough about it because it's in fact it's it is um, called I'm entitled it Perseus kills his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Because what happened was I grew up uh, reading a lot of Greek myths too. They were they were my favorites, and one of my favorite stories was the story of Perseus. And and I used to also you know study astronomy, so I used to look for these characters in the sky, etc. And then eventually they made movies out of this Perseus. Everyone's more familiar with it. They you know they even have the young adult Perseus stuff. And none of them are actually the the story itself. I mean there are elements you know kill Medusa, save Andromeda, whatever, but they really, really diverged from the actual story. And I thought the story was interesting enough unto itself. So, you know, I said, I'm going to take that story and stay as true to it as possible and make it a comedy. Mm-hmm. That was my, that's what I decided one day. And I started working it to see if that would work. And initially it did. And then as I started to delve into it, I started to realize how it didn't work. I mean, there were things I expected, like, you know, when I did The Devil and the Wolf, I had to do a lot of research on uh, things like a little bit more about angels and devils, et cetera, and how they were p- depicted in literature and all that. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have to do any, any research on comedy. I'd done it already once before. But, um, but I did have to research things on, you know, ancient greek history like when i had a if i had a scene where perseus jumps on a horse i realized wait did they have saddles back then and no they didn't they had blankets you know so you learn these things i and again i'm, I'm not writing i'm not writing a period piece so i don't have to be that accurate but i like to be so so there was that but what i didn't expect was the fact that um there are points where the story when you're reading it as a kid or even as an adult you just take for granted so perseus you know, makes this claim he's going to go kill Medusa. And, uh, and then the next thing is he's told by the gods, you got to go to the, uh, uh, say the Hebrides, you know, or, or, or I don't know, and, and pick any of those ancient ones. And so, you know, you go, oh, okay. And then he goes there, you know, and he finds these, uh, what he needs, the sandals of Hermes. And he goes to the next place where the gray sisters are. But what you don't realize is when you map that out, they're like on opposite ends of the, European earth, as it were, you know, one's mm. by the Straits of Gibraltar, one is up by the plains of Siberia. And he, he just goes there from one sentence to the next. So you're stuck now saying, okay, <laughs> how do I make this happen? So, you know, that was a little disturbing. But the worst part that hit me was it's five, three to five pages long, depending on what version, because there's a lot of versions out there. It's an ancient story. Mm-hmm. And you can find out the beginning and the end. And I'm going to tell everybody that it's this, this man, he's a king, Acretius. He goes to see the, the Oracle of Delphi who says, you know, he goes, am I going to ever have a son? And she goes, no, you have a daughter. 
she's going to have a son. He goes, okay. And that son's going to grow up and kill you. And he's like, what? You know, so he goes home and he says, I can't have this. And he takes, don't ask me why I came up with a reason, but don't ask me why originally Mm -hmm. he takes his daughter and the baby who the baby, by the way, is also the child of Zeus. His, his, uh, Zeus came to his daughter. She's unwed, typical Greek story there, ancient Greek story. And, you know, and then impregnated her. So she, she gave birth to Perseus. So he puts both of them in a box and puts them on the water and says, you know, kind of let the gods take care of it. Not my problem anymore. Uh, and then he grows up and then he makes the claim to go. So, so, you know, the story then, and then at the very end, which is, you know, two and a half, three pages later, uh, Perseus is, is married in drama, has got kids, family, blah, 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 everything, happy ending. And this king that nobody ever heard of, whatever, has died, but they're going to have games in his honor. So he goes to the games, and although I think he's supposed to throw in one version of javelin, another discus. So he picks up the discus, and he never had thrown one before, and he throws the discus, and it's a really bad throw. And it goes in the stands, and it hits an old man and kills him. And that was his grandfather. So all the prophecy fulfilled. So I said, okay, now I'm stuck with this problem where anyone could go find out the ending. How do you have a surprise ending? Mm-hmm. So I said, can I write this? Can I write a book that's funny and engaging? Well, you know how it's going to turn out. I mean, I know everyone's expecting it ends at Medusa being killed. That's what the movies have done for us. But so I said, okay. I think I can. And I have to thank the old television series Columbo. Because I, so I was stuck there one night. I'm honest, it's honest truth. I was just stuck there thinking, can I go forward with this book? And I was just channeling through TV and it was Columbo on. I hadn't seen that in years. And if you've never seen Columbo, every episode is generally the same in structure. And I have got to give back, back in time credit to these writers. Lieutenant Columbo, in the first five minutes of the show, you know who the murderer it is. You watch <laughs> the person do the murder. You know who the murderer is. You know exactly how they do it. You even see how they set up all the details to try to avoid being caught at the murder. And then Lieutenant Colombo shows up, and he knows who the murderer is. He just doesn't know exactly how he did everything. He knows part. He already figures out pieces that don't jive. And so for the next hour, you are entertained even though you know the whole story mm-hmm. and then when i see it like that i go wow you guys are geniuses you know good <laughs> or bad episode doesn't matter but you managed to have a very successful series that scanned years and years giving people the ending the typical ending to a mystery but giving them a story and a character who's somewhat funny and engaging to make it interesting to sit there for the 40 minutes less advertisement for this to unfurl. So I said, you know what? That's how I'm approaching this new book and that's how I'm doing it. And it is difficult. But I've done this before. I did this in the first book with Mephistopheles. I'm going to give something away to everybody. Um, It's a little thing I did to myself because I guess I just don't like making things too easy. Uh, Somewhere along the line, I had some great jokes I had to pull out because of this really good ones. But I decided um, that for some reason that Mephistopheles thoughts like you know i get the thing was i was writing this as i usually love to do third person omnipotent you know so you get to see people's thoughts occasionally i don't like to go too much into their thoughts when i do that but you get to see everybody's thoughts a little bit what they say themselves it's really works sometimes well in comedy so because you get the point of view um but i decided to block out mephistopheles thoughts entirely and he says it in the first chapter my thoughts on my own no one gets to know that and uh, and I did that. And that was like putting one hand behind my back to write because, again, there was some great jokes of what he thinks and then what he says. And I had to get rid of them all. So I made it difficult. I made that difficult. And so, you know, then again, with this story, with the person, thing, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm sticking true to the story. I'm not going – I'll have to add some characters and there's all the dialogue. But that's okay because the plot is going to deviate. I'm going to stick to it and you're going to know it beginning and end. So the challenge – Again, it's just to make it on the characters and the dialogue. So that's what I'm doing. Do I babble too much? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the work in progress is always the one that's the most exciting. So, yeah, I mean, to hear you so excited about it, it makes me want to read it. When when, when do you think it'll be done? Well, I mean, you never know, uh, I guess. Well, you know, I, I didn't want to uh, 
it's something a topic I purposely avoided um, because I'm, it's not because it's a sensitive subject. It's just that I'm sick of hearing myself talk about it. Is uh, back in in January, my I had a spinal problem for 12 years that just it was I could deal with the physical therapy. That's so bad, so bad that I could barely walk. And I eventually there was no other option but surgery. Mm-hmm. So on March 21st is when I went for some significant five to six hour surgery all spine like the chunk of my spine was fused etc so and i was thinking at the time well okay and they're not going to allow me to drive for six weeks i have to recuperate all this sort of stuff i was going to work from home but i thought it'd be a great time to get writing in because i had started the perseus book actually in january and i thought all right making good progress but i'll be honest uh, that whole entire eight-week period actually turned out to be was i couldn't write i was able to do some work for work and that tells you something about my work you know, how easy it's become, but I could not concentrate long enough. I would start and I would start writing and just uh, too many distractions with what my body is going through. So I put it off. So I've lost my schedule. But right now, I would say, because I recently re-picked it up about uh, three, four weeks ago, I actually got back to writing. I had to reread it first. So, um, And I would say my hope is by end of summer, I should be, you know, into the edits, well into the edits. And because I'd like to get it out before the end of the year. And the reason why is because at the time I thought, I got plenty of time. Uh, I did promise the sequel to The Devil and the Wolf in 2020 in the book mm-hmm. at the very end to see you in 2020. And I thought, okay, I'll make that. So I mean, I have all of 2020 to get that out, but um, technically maybe 2021, but still I didn't want to write a sequel right away. I, I don't, I didn't want to be one of those authors who writes a book and then the next five books are the whatever's, you know, I do want to do that. I do want it to be a series, but I wanted to do a bunch of things in between. So I want to get this under the belt. Hopefully by the end of the year, I don't see that as a problem. And then I will pick up, uh, one of the books I had to drop because they got lost, even after re- completely reconstructed, and write that uh, and go back and forth with the sequel to The Devil and the Wolf. And I do have the prequel. That's one of the books I lost. The prequel, which just figures Mephistopheles as um, somewhere between minor major characters, somewhere in the middle. Uh, and uh, I had always mapped out how the whole Garden of Eden would go and how it ties in with this whole world building that I did. Uh, so that I would like to do probably last now. Um, so that's, that's my, that's my, my literary goals uh, <laughs> is this book end of the year, next year, devil and the wolf and a secondary book, uh, another book that I'm not going to talk about. And then the year after or two years after will be the, uh, garden of Eden book. Well, this is, a question I've left to last on your advice that you write in the back of the book. What are your oh. favorite things to cook? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, you don't have two hours, but because I, <laughs> I do, I, I read up everything about food. I love the history of it, where things come from. And I would say, um, uh, I would say, I'm most comfortable cooking, you know, whatever you would consider an entree because that's, you know, I'm more comfortable being a cook than say a baker. You know, there's, there's more fluidity, there's more experimentation. Uh, it's one of the things I have problems. I come up with great things and then I realize I haven't measured a single thing. So if I want to reproduce it, it's, you know, but, but, um, uh, I, I cook almost anything. I have friends who are vegan and I'll cook vegan dishes. I have friends who are glucose intolerant. I'll cook whatever they want. You know, seafood, you know, meats, poultry, et cetera, vegetables, it doesn't matter. I'll cook for them. Now, I only eat certain things. You know, I, I eat a very healthy diet. I've done all that research on food. You know, I'm going to learn about it. Um, closest, I guess you could call it, is kind of like a Mediterranean diet, you know. Um, but uh, but for, for guests, whatever they want. And, yeah, desserts, I do make some some spectacular desserts. I make this, uh, I put it in the book. Oh, if I could give me another idea, but, um, <laughs> I put it in the book. It's, uh, it's, it's pear. Sometimes I'll put in a piece of peach uh, crumble. It's, and I, I cook, I peel and cook pears and then I, I cook them in a uh, chambord. It's a raspberry liqueur mm. and I just cook them until they're tender and the chambord has evaporated down to a syrup. So there's no sugar except what comes out of the fruit and the uh, liqueur, uh, liqueur. And uh, I put that 
and in whatever container it could be in a ramekin could be in a whole uh, eight by ten you know uh, dish whatever and then i make a, a crumble out of brown sugar oats pecans and um Oh, what else? But I have some flour, right? And mm-hmm. and I bake that, and then I put that crumble. I break it up a bit, and I put it on top. And it is out of well those a little little top of whipped cream. If you want that or ice cream, you can have it warm, cold, whatever. It's delicious. And I put that. I had Mephistopheles make it kind of in the book, um, but it gave me the idea also that I think I'd like to write a book. Uh, if you ever read like Water for Chocolate, it's supposed to be this, this, this story of a love story with recipes in there. I didn't find that many recipes, but I would like to write a book where the characters eat things along the way. And then at the end of the book, I'm going to post all the recipes in it. Nice. So that could be fun. <laughs> well, it was so lovely talking to you. I'm Thank so glad you. we finally Thank managed you. to get it organized. Yeah. I, I hope I didn't chew your ear off. I do have a tendency to do that. <laughs> no, not at all. It was it was super it was super interesting. So that was Richard Pastor. His novel is The Devil and the Wolf. I do hope you'll check it out. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As always, if you're a reader, writer, editor, listener, anyone with anything you want to tell me, or if you want to be on the show, or if you want to recommend somebody to be on the show, you can always get in touch with me. Uh, using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you but that is all from me for now so until next time bye bye